Let's see. Old friends walk in, so good to have Ron and Shay Russell with us this morning. We've got lesson four handouts coming around. We are going to finish up lesson three this morning before we move on to lesson four. And so if you don't have lesson three, I've got a couple up here, but um, we're going to be done with this lesson pretty quickly, I hope, so we can move on into lesson four. Uh, talking about our study about the Holy Spirit and our overview right now about the Old Testament scriptures. And then we're going to look at New Testament this morning, Lord willing, and get through that lesson as far as we can. As you know, I never have grand delusions of finishing a lesson on time. Any announcements or prayer requests need to make known this morning before we get going? I'm not seeing any hands. Of course, we want to keep the Nall family in our prayers. Sister Sybil, it's been on my mind this week and... Uh, Sorry, I had something already going on and I missed the, the, the memorial service, but I've uh, been thinking about you, praying for you and your, y'all's family. Um, Joe was always an encouragement to me and uh, appreciate him greatly. Any other announcements or prayer requests this morning? Yeah, how's Brother Claude doing? I haven't heard an update. Okay, good. Good. Brother Claude Flynn, of course having some health issues here and uh, has been uh, recovering, hopefully. So he's doing better. Okay. Brother Claude, his daughter's mother-in-law passed away this week. So family's been going through a lot. All right, well, let's start off with a word of prayer before we begin our study. Please bow with me. Heavenly Father, we are incredibly thankful and grateful for having another day we can wake up together and join together here on this first day of the week here at Dalreda. God, we're thankful for the family that meets here. and We're thankful for the encouragement that we give to one another as we assemble together on the first day of the week and other times during the week to open up your word, study from it together, to encourage, admonish, instruct each other. God, we are so thankful for an eldership here who looks out for our souls. We ask you to continue to heap tremendous blessings upon their heads. And may we be good workmen here in the the church alongside them as we seek and save the lost here in the Montgomery area, in our own community, and around the world. God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your spirit. And we're thankful for his inspiration of the word. giving it to us so that we will be able to read about what you want us to do, what provisions you have given for us in our lives, those commandments which we are to follow. And God, may we heed your words that have been given to us and be all the more faithful as each day moves on. We are mindful of the many sick and those that have lost loved ones among us. We're especially mindful of the Nall family as on the loss of Brother Joe, and we ask that you please continue to encourage them, let them know how much we love and care for them. And God, help us to always focus on that tremendous hope that we have for rejoining each other one day in heaven. God, we ask you to, to be with us as we speak to those who have lost loved ones, those who are dealing with illnesses, and may we always focus on those things which are eternal and not those things that are passing and fleeting on this world. 
God, we're thankful for your son, most of all, who died on the cross for our sins. And it's through his name that we pray. Amen. As we pick up last week's lesson here at the end, I didn't quite get through with the, uh, the different things that we see in the Old Testament about the way that the, the, the Spirit worked. As he works in the Old Testament, we've gone through several different points here, of course. We saw his work in creation. We talked about his work in protecting the scriptures. We talked about his work uh, revealing the unknowable and, and considering the prophecies which the Spirit uh, allowed to be spoken and, and given from God to man. We see how he guided speakers, how he enabled talents. And I have in my notes that we got down to the point of strengthening leaders is about where we got with regard to these points of uh, the Spirit's work in the Old Testament. And I think that the idea of strengthening leaders is something that most of us think back on. And when we think about the scriptures that are kind of outlined for us in the Old Testament and, and the very visible and obvious work of the, of the Spirit usually falls under this right here because we see it occurring time and time again. Uh, whether it is the Spirit coming upon a king or we talk about the Spirit coming upon a prophet or a judge. Uh, we see those kind of phrases used very commonly in the Old Testament, talking about the Spirit's work uh, there as He strengthened leaders. You see, and I don't have time, unfortunately, because we want to move on to this. I've got the Scriptures there on the screen as well as uh, in your handouts there. Just a couple of samples, Scriptures. There are Judges 3.10, of course, you read there, of how the Spirit came upon the judge. And, and I believe that one was... Uh, I don't want to miss it, so I want to make sure I got it right. It's a problem when you start reading and studying two different lessons at the same time. You get a little bit uh, distracted. I believe it's Gideon. Uh, but before I say that for sure, I want to make sure I'm correct. But uh, Judges 3.10, no, it was the first judge. Uh, so it's going to be Othniel, actually. And it says there, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And then he went out uh, to war, and the Lord gave Cushan, Rishtham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands, so that he prevailed over Cushan, uh, Rishmatamia, uh, Rishathium, however you say the word there. It's a place. Those kind of phrases there with regard to the judgment. This is the, the first chronicle of the first judge, Othniel. And the Lord coming upon him and him judging Israel. You see the examples there of, of the, um, the duty of judging Israel became too great for Moses. God sent the Holy Spirit over in uh, Exodus. Uh, I mean, Numbers chapter 11 to strengthen 70 others to try and lift Moses up. And so you see the Spirit of the Lord coming upon those 70, uh, giving them the strength and encouragement. You see uh, the examples we see of the judges, of course. You see Joshua, you see David, and a host of other leaders, even Saul, talking about the, the Spirit of the Lord was upon them as they led their nation, as they led Israel, as they led the people. And uh, you see the Spirit of the Lord really coinciding with the presence of God being upon these leaders, as well as the strength of God behind these leaders. As you go throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, you'll see that uh, the Spirit of God becomes synonymous with the presence, the authority, the power of God upon these leaders and upon these nations. And in fact, when you see the downfall of Saul, uh, what do you see there that it was taken from Saul? The Spirit of the Lord was taken from Saul because he refused to obey and do what God said to do against the Amalekites. The Spirit of the Lord was taken away from Saul and David, of course, was ultimately anointed as king in his place. Uh, did not make Saul very happy, as we know. And as we read the scriptures and we talk about, and I think uh, Brother Melvin had the, the lesson not too long ago about the idea of Saul and the way he acted. 
Uh, and you see the idea there that this, when the Spirit departed from Saul, uh, he made some pretty bad decisions, and you kind of see why the Spirit of the Lord was no longer with him. Uh, it, it really went backwards, and was his downfall at that point when the Spirit was taken from Saul at that point in time as being the king. Now, it doesn't mean that the Spirit being taken away made him no longer have free will, didn't allow him to make good choices. That's not what the synonymous uh, parallel there is. The parallel in those scriptures in the Old Testament really deal with the presence of God being upon his anointed or being upon those leaders or being upon those certain circumstances and situations like in the judges where God is there and in control. His authority is there invested upon that leader. He really strengthens the leader through the Holy Spirit. So you see the Spirit's work there strengthening by uh, being strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And you see, finally, the stimulation of courage by the Spirit. Uh, this kind of goes hand in hand sometimes with what we read about the Spirit coming upon an individual there. But in several different passages, it wasn't easy, obviously, to stand and to rebuke an entire nation. The Holy Spirit knew those whose hearts were courageous enough to do it, and he stirred up that courage within them. He, he didn't really create an ability they didn't have, but sometimes he, those abilities had to be stimulated to the point where they could actually do what God wanted them to do for his will to be carried out. So the Spirit was able to stir within them and give them the courage that they needed and that was necessary to move on. Look at a couple examples there real quick. Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20. You see there, uh, this is a Joash, and uh, verse 20 says, The Spirit of God came upon uh, Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. There in verse 20, we see uh, obviously the, the standing up, the ability there to, to rebuke the multitude, and likely was because the Spirit of God came upon him, gave him that courage to be able to stand up and be able to speak against those uh, who were doing things against God's will. And several of the verses in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 11, Micah chapter 3, Zechariah chapter 7, uh, several instances there where we see the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord coming upon the individual and him standing up, speaking out boldly on behalf of God and, and what God's will is there for uh, his people. Obviously, we see some adverse reactions. We just, if you read verse 21 of the passage we just read, uh, there you see Zechariah was uh, conspired against. And um, at the command of the king, they actually stoned him to death. And so you see, unfortunately, uh, you see the adverse reactions sometimes to what God wants. But sometimes it took, I believe, the Spirit of God encouraging and strengthening the individuals to be able to stand up and to have the courage that was necessary there to lead the people. And in the Old Testament, we see passages that show us and, and help, um, help us understand that the Spirit was actively involved in that. After the Spirit of the Lord came upon an individual, they took action. They did what God wanted them to do. And so you see that kind of work by the Spirit in the Old Testament scriptures there for God's will and for God's purposes. Real quick, two important points that I don't want to leave out with regard to the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. First of all, not all in the Old Testament had the Holy Spirit. Uh, there is an ind indication there that the, we, we're told the Spirit has been given to certain individuals. It was not a blanket um, giving of the Spirit. And if you think about that compared to the New Testament where uh, we are all promised to have the Holy Spirit if we obey God, it is given a little bit more freely, I would say, in the New Testament versus the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament is a very pointed scriptures, very specific purposes where the Spirit is talked about being given to select persons. Uh, these persons were sometimes endowed with supernatural measure of the Spirit's power for purpose, fulfilling some divine purpose. Think about uh, Samson there at the end of his life. Uh, Samson, of course, I, I don't think is really someone that I exalt as being someone of great faith and be, to be quite honest with you, I don't like necessarily us exalting him to our children because when they grow up and they read the true story of who Samson was, I don't really think it's a good idea. We kind of get enamored with him because of his incredible strength, right, that he had. And his incredible strength, of course, was taken away from him because of his disobedience and because of Delilah cutting his hair and him not fulfilling those things which God wanted to do. At the end of his life, what we see, though, is that he is there being captive, right? He's blinded, and as he's strapped and, and, and uh, strung up to the pillar there of the, the temple area where he is put there, uh, he, he makes that prayer and that request to God that he give him one more uh, ability, uh, some, one, one more measure of the Spirit, so to speak. I'm not sure he uses those distinctive words if you look at the passage, but that's what God gives him is this one last measure of the Spirit for him to be able to have this supernatural strength that he did not have before he had the Spirit. The Spirit came upon him and he was able to push the pillars of the temple there and kill hundreds of, upon hundreds of people. Uh, said that he killed more in his death than he did actually throughout of his life. So when you think of that parallel there, there is a spe special endowment uh, sometimes where the Spirit has come upon these individuals and given them some type of supernatural ability that they would not have had otherwise. In some other instances, some individuals, just like we read in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 24 where um, the uh, Zechariah there stood up before the people, he was stoned. That's not really necessarily a supernatural ability there of speaking up and speaking out. It was just a stirring probably of the Spirit within Zechariah to, to speak those things which he should have been speaking anyways. And so it's not necessarily a supernatural strength or ability that he did not have otherwise, but a stimulation there of an individual's abilities that God had already blessed him with there. And as I said, in contrast, the New Testament presents the Holy Spirit really in two different types of measures, both the miraculous and what I would call the ordinary. We're going to get to that later on. I don't want to get bogged down this morning. But when you think about uh, the, the New Testament and the Old Testament, there is somewhat parallel abilities there by the Spirit given, some natural, ordinary uh, some supernatural or miraculous, as we see in the scriptures there. Uh, however, the one difference that's very distinct is the fact that the Spirit is promised to all who believe and who obey. And the Spirit is given to us and says to, is to dwell within all Christians who are believers. Now, how it dwells or how he dwells, we'll get into that hopefully in later lessons. But that promise is given to a much larger group of people. For those of us who have become Christians and are faithful followers of, of God and of Christ, we see that there is a promise there of the Holy Spirit being given to us. As in comparison to the Old Testament, there was no such promise given there. In fact, the Spirit came upon individuals at, at specific times and places when God there, I believe, in His ultimate will, uh, prescribed that as being a, a perfect time for the Spirit to be involved and to either encourage someone or to give someone an ability there to speak up and stand up. The second point in the overall kind of... Uh, umbrella point of the Old Testament as you look at the passages of the Holy Spirit is the fact that the whole, in Old Testament times, some had the, the Spirit but lost it, but lost it. It was not necessarily a blanket uh, gift where you would always have it. I've already spoken of Samson and there's other ones as well that uh, when the Spirit was actually taken away because of sin in their lives, you can look at Judges 16, 1 Samuel 10, 1 Samuel 16, Psalm 51, uh, these kind of times when it talks about the Spirit departing from them or the Spirit leaving or they no longer have the Spirit. 
And those kind of phrases are used with regard to individuals. And if you look, it is always synonymous there with situations and circumstances where the individual has allowed sin to encroach and come into their lives, and they have gone contrary to the will of God. Good example I already mentioned a moment ago with Saul. Saul was the Lord's anointed. He was God's first anointed king of his people. And as he anointed Saul, he, he had put him in this place of protection, and he had, he had given him this a place of honor to lead the people. And his spirit, it said, had come upon Saul. And it remained upon Saul until Saul disobeyed God. And when Saul disobeyed God, would not repent, would not change, you see the spirit of the Lord leaving Saul and was no longer with him in that presence. So there's a distinctive, I think, uh, point to be made there is that just because an individual may have had the spirit, uh, they could very well lose the spirit. And that loss of the spirit comes upon disobedience and those things which... Uh, go contrary to God's will. And unfortunately, I think that if we think about in the New Testament days or even in the, the modern time that we are in today, some argument could be made as well as the fact that, that we may lose the spirit of God. If we choose to live in disobedience, if we choose to defy what God's will is, we are therefore scorning or grieving the spirit and we are placing ourselves in peril of losing the spirit's influence in our lives. And so you see a parallel there. I think that can be made even from Old Testament to New Testament in modern times. And so you see those two important points, I believe, about, about the Spirit in the Old Testament that I wanted to point out. And then real quickly here, there are some, um, some ideas of carrying on creation and uh, some summary observations about the, the mission of the Holy Spirit. First, his primary mission was to bring order to God's creation and ultimately to man. And he was working to make earthly life pleasant uh, this is ultimately the goal of all three persons of the Godhead. Second, the orderliness of the Holy Spirit is most evident uh, when you see in Job chapter 26, uh, which we've already spoken about there, the word garnished is used in some scriptures and some, uh, some translations. There's some other phrasings used as well there. But the Spirit is one who was involved or is, you know, in, as in the creation aspect and in the ordering aspect of making sure things were put together in a way that's pleasing, not just the God, but also the man. And so you see the idea there of God making things pleasing through, the, pleasing through the Spirit. And the progression ultimately of the Holy Spirit's ordering of creation is found in really three steps. It did not end really ultimately there on that day of creation or that week of creation that the Spirit was actively involved in there. But you see that, that the Spirit took chaos and He made the universe. Uh, as you go on and progress, you see the Spirit's involvement also in ordering man and ordering and, and creating order among men uh, there in Genesis chapter 6 where you see the idea of taking lawlessness and ordering relationships. And I don't want to get too bogged down in the chapter 6 there, but uh, the Spirit and God were involved in trying to take man's perception and man's twisted um, lawless state and allowing uh, it to be in, in some type of an order. And then you also see in the scriptures the idea of the progression ultimately where he took individuals and he ordered character uh, with regard to what they were made of. He encouraged them to be a certain character. He encouraged them to have something in their lives which was important. And so there, even throughout the work of the Holy Spirit was not 100% accomplished at that week of creation. You see the ordering continuing, progressing throughout scriptures. In Nehemiah uh, chapter 9, you see there the point where he uh, looked at the, um, the qualities which bring joy and happiness. And those things are offered to man. And allowing those things to help um, build up and help strengthen and order our lives uh, was not something that was 100% accomplished on the days of creation. 
during those six days of creation. It was something that you see progressing and being ultimately involved in as time goes on uh, for that. So ultimately, that's kind of the, the lesson three. Any comments or questions before we move on to the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament, the Holy Spirit and the New Testament days? Yes, Josh. It's not a momentary lapse of judgment. That's correct. Yes, I agree. Um, and, and when you look at the overwhelming, and I, and I hope I did not convey it as much, and that's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up, Josh, is the idea that you know, even in Scripture, you look at the life of Saul, and it was not a momentary you know, lapse that, that caused the Spirit to leave Saul. If Saul had been penitent, if Saul had been sorry for what he had done, I truly believe at that point in time that, that God would have allowed his king to stand. But you see the idea that there was a uh, mindset of Saul there that I knew better than God. And that's why I didn't kill all the Amalekites. Right, and, and the, the mindset, again, is what type of man and what kind of attitude does that man have toward the sins he's committed against God? In the same way with us today, and I don't want to get into a, a, an in-depth conversation about how our sins are continually cleansed and, and the ideas that are set forth in First John chapter 1. There is a concept there among Christian, uh, Christianity that, that the blood of Christ continually cleanses those who remain faithful to God. It doesn't mean that we don't have momentary lapses of judgment. It doesn't mean that we don't mess up along the way. But it, it goes back to that same type of a, a conceptual, spiritual concept of our minds being penitent and being reflective on who God is and the fact that we're not just an open defiance of God. It's not just a, a continual progression of that sin. It's not a continual lifestyle of living in that sin. It's an idea that to be called, even, even if we make one sin, even if we commit one sin, that, that wrong against others or against God, it does not necessarily nullify our standing between us and God if we remain faithful and penitent in our reaction to those things. I hope that makes sense. That's a very high-level argument and a very uh, complex and deep thinking when we go to it. But when you come to the Spirit and its impact in our lives, ultimately what it goes back to is that when we reject God, we reject His Spirit. And that's where you get to in the Old Testament, and that's where you're going to get to ultimately in the New Testament as well. As you look at any passages of Scripture there where the Spirit has been grieved or the Spirit has been wronged, it's not just an individual wrong against the Holy Spirit. It is wrong whenever you wrong God. And by rejecting God, by your impenitent 
attitude when you reject God by your refusal to accept that you have done wrong and change and, and repent. And you are not just rejecting God, you're rejecting the Spirit as well. And so it becomes a, a way, and I don't know if we'll get to the, the question about the uh, unforgivable sin of the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, but when you get to that kind of a concept, that's where that concept is. That's where it goes when you, when you beat down that whole argument and the scriptures surrounding that. That unforgivable sin occurs because you refuse to accept God. You refuse to accept His Spirit. You refuse to change your life. And so at that point in time, you know, you're in a, in a situation there where you don't want the Spirit by the way that you're acting. It's not that God doesn't offer it to you. God offers His Spirit, but we must be willing to be obedient and faithful. Anything else? Good thoughts. All right, lesson number four, as we move into the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, as, as I said last week, the, the Holy Spirit really becomes more prominent in the New Testament. And I don't want to rehash all of that dispensational type of uh, wording that we talked about last week. And as you think about the different ways that the Spirit is presented, you cannot help but read the New Testament and realize that the Spirit's ever-present and involved. Uh, you read the four gospel accounts. You cannot help but see the Spirit being involved there with the Lord Jesus Christ as He's on this earth. You cannot help but see it. You cannot help but see, but when Christ says the Spirit's with Him, you can't help but see it whenever the Spirit comes upon Him. You can't help but see it when God sends the Spirit down to, to convey that message to other people around Jesus Christ, saying, I'm, I'm proud of my Son, that the Spirit is involved in the New Testament. You can't help but see, as the book of Acts unfolds, the acts of the Holy Spirit. And I think Melvin and I were talking last week, as you think of the book of Acts, we call the acts of the apostles. But in reality, it is really the acts of the Holy Spirit. Because throughout that book, that's what's being involved there, is how the Spirit is acting through the apostles. It's not really the actions of the apostles. The healing that's done, those things that are taught, those things that are preached, those things that are conveyed to the multitudes or even small congregations that, that Paul goes to, it's the Holy Spirit being involved in those situations. Yes, man's involved. Paul's involved as a mouthpiece. Peter's involved as a mouthpiece. You see that interaction with man, but you cannot help but see the Spirit being involved. Same thing as you go through the rest of the epistles, throughout all the, the epistles, throughout the book of Revelation. You cannot help but see the Spirit's involvement in the New Testament. And in fact, as I mentioned last week, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God, or whatever word or name you want to call the Spirit there in the New Testament, it's called, he's called many different things is mentioned more than three times what he was mentioned in the Old Testament. And there's a reason behind that. And the reason behind it, as we talked about last week, the focus goes less on God the Father transitioning through God the Son and ultimately on God the Spirit and His involvement with us even though Jesus has left this earth. The Spirit, God, is still involved in our lives today and the New Testament helps convey those thoughts to us, helps us understand some of these basic understanding, these basic points uh, for us to, to be comforted and to have this knowledge that we're not alone even though Jesus has left this earth. Emmanuel, God is with us. That's what, that's what his name meant, right? Emmanuel, God is with us. He has left, though. He's left this earth. It's not, Jesus is no longer walking on this earth as a man. But God has not left us, ultimately. 
And we see that through the New Testament scriptures, that this new Christian dispensation that will last until Jesus comes back again is full of the Spirit's involvement with us. Maybe in some different ways, maybe in various forms or, or fashions, but the Spirit still maintains His presence with us as long as, of course, we're welcoming to the Spirit being here. Uh, some, if you want to just totally disregard it, will not have the Spirit in their lives. You don't read His Word, you're not going to have the Spirit in your life. If you don't focus on those things which are more important to God, the Spirit will not be with you because you are not unified together. That's why it's so important as we read the New Testament to see the importance of the church and to see the importance of being a Christian and to see why it is that the Spirit of God maintains His existence with us even to this day. Now, again, we'll get into the hows maybe later on in the these study of lessons. I don't want to get bogged down in that today. But as you see the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, there's three times amount of references. And what you see as a, a cursory glance and as a couple of, of thought processes as we look at the New Testament real quickly, you're going to see that, first of all, the, the Spirit is mentioned by every author. Every author of the New Testament talks about the Spirit at some point in time. Now, it may not be, and he is not included in every book. In fact, there is 24 books that mention the Holy Spirit. There are three books that do not mention the Holy Spirit. That'd be Philemon, 2 John, and 3 John, if you're taking notes and want to know who they are. Uh, you cannot find a mention to the Spirit in those three books. But the 24 other books all mention the Spirit. All writers emphasize and focus on the Spirit's involvement in some way, form, or fashion. Paul, in his epistles, as we'll talk about, refers to the Spirit's involvement in Christians' lives. John, in John 14, 15, and 16, which I assigned you to read for this week, you cannot help but read those passages of Scripture and see how important the Spirit is there in the lives of the first century Christians. Because Jesus talked about His importance. So the, the New Testament places an emphasis on it by men, being mentioned by every author, by being in 24, the 27 books. And if you look at the book of Romans, Romans has the most references to it. Romans is a great study. If you want to just do a personal Bible study on the book of Romans, it's a great study. But Paul there focuses to the Roman brethren about the Spirit's involvement and the fact that the Spirit being a part of our lives makes us this new creature, makes us this new being, makes us uh, transformed because of the Spirit's involvement with us. And you cannot help but see uh, the Spirit's uh, place in a Christian's life as you read the first century uh, letters and, and gospels that we have, that have been uh, preserved for us. There's multiple distinctive names, and I've listed those on your handouts for you. I'm not going to get into too many of these, but obviously the Spirit is called multiple different things. Uh, in the New Testament, he is called real quickly the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, he's called the Spirit of God. He's called the Spirit of Christ. He's called the Spirit himself. All those references are in Romans chapter 8. As I said, Romans has the most references. So I don't know if uh, Paul wanted to make sure that he just kind of varied it up a little bit. You know, when I'm writing, I don't like to keep writing Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. You know, kind of like to vary it up a little bit. And these words and these names have been interchangeable for the Spirit. You see Paul referring to him as the Spirit of God's Son, the Spirit of the Father. Uh, in Matthew, you see that reference there. Uh, you see him referenced in the book of John as being the Spirit of Truth in John 14. You see him just simply called the, the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 28. And you see uh, John also referring to him, really Jesus referring to him in John chapter 14 as being the Comforter. So you see different 
names or, or terms used for the Spirit in the New Testament. Some of these convey, I think, some deeper meanings, and I don't want to do necessarily a name study as we go forward on the different names of the Holy Spirit. But I think some of these can kind of speak for themselves when you think about this. Uh, some of the things that I would say uh, this morning about the names, it's interesting to me that you have the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the Lord or Spirit of Christ being synonymous with regard to the Holy Spirit. Uh, that, to me, argues in favor of this trinity or this deity that we talk about, the three in one. They are all part and parcel of the same. And so you see the idea that, that they are connected. Paul, by using these various names and other situations where, uh, you know, these names are used uh, primarily by Paul uh, of the different uh, being the Spirit of God or being the Spirit of Christ, help convey to us the fact that they are unified and being part together. Uh, they are not separate necessarily. Uh, they may be separate in personality, but in, in the, the, the functioning and the roles and the purposes and the will of God, they are all right there and synced together. And so the names and the distinctive names of, of, of the Spirit are seen there in Scripture. And there are other references. I just use at least one for each of those uh, as you look at the listing there. But you can find that, and you may find some other ones in some other versions, the way that some things are translated uh, therefore, the distinctive uh, you know, list of names of the Holy Spirit. What is most compelling to me? As you look at the New Testament, we don't have time to go through the hundreds of verses uh, together. So I've tried to group some of these concepts together as we kind of look at an overview of the, of the New Testament and, and how the Spirit is conveyed there. But first, you look at the metaphors used for the Spirit. And you, you kind of consider uh, what things are compared to in the New Testament or what the Spirit is compared to in the New Testament to kind of help us maybe form some kind of a mindset as to what the Spirit does or did, uh, who the Spirit is. Uh, there is not a good way, as we have fumbled around in this lesson series so far as well, to, uh, even, and we will continue to fumble around probably, trying to give a, a succinct description of who the Spirit is. There's not a, a succinct way to put it. There's not that conceptually or spiritually a way to just kind of put it in a nutshell and say, this is the Spirit. Boom, here you go. And so you see scriptures and Jesus and the other apostles, as you see uh, moving forward, using or showing the Spirit in different ways, what we would call metaphors. And if you study metaphors in school, uh, they are like or as. Those are usually the words that are, are used in metaphors. But it is a comparison to a concept or an idea that helps convey a similar concept or idea. And so in this situation, when you're looking at the, the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is portrayed in scriptures, you see several different metaphors uh, for the Spirit. And I like to explore these. I don't want to read too much into these. Uh, but I would like to just explore these metaphors briefly, if I could, to kind of discuss and see how the scriptures portray the Spirit uh, to man in the scriptures and even portray the Spirit there uh, during the first century. Uh, you see the first metaphor that I would like to look at is the idea of being a dove. And so if you're looking at your, your, your handouts, you've got them all listed there, I think, already anyways. But look at the idea of the metaphor of a dove. You see this in Matthew chapter 3, 16, parallel passages over in Mark chapter 1, verse 10, Luke chapter 3, verse 22, and John chapter 1, verse 32. And so when you look at the, the, the Spirit... First of all, I want to point out, there's none of these scriptures that say the Spirit was actually a dove. Okay, so as children, we probably have this concept in our minds of an actual dove that's kind of descending from heaven and lighting upon 
Christ. If you look at the passages of Scripture, uh, there is always a comparison that he is like a, the form of a dove. So he could have been, I guess, in the actual physical form of a dove. Uh, but as a predicate before we get into this metaphor, I just want to make sure and, and point out to you that it may not be 100% accurate because we just don't really know what this form of a dove was. It could be a physical form. It could have been some type of an illuminescent type of lighting, you know, that was in the form or the, the appearance of a dove coming from heaven. And it could have been that the, the people there just saw that form coming down from heaven and that's what it looked like to them. And so that's what people talked about. That was a form of a dove. And that's the most accurate way for the spirit to convey it to, to man and the inspired gospel writings. And so that's the way the description kind of came out there is that the spirit lighted upon Christ or came down from heaven in this form of a dove. So I don't want to get too bogged down in that. But the idea that the spirit is referred to as appearing in the form or the appearance of a dove, I think is very important. The, the Dove, historically, has been a, a symbol of purity, a symbol of gentleness or peace. Uh, and in fact, that same symbol has been transpired even to today's culture and today's world where you see the idea of doves being the epitome of peaceful coexistence or, or that kind of a mindset that, that this, uh, the idea of purity because doves are white become the idea of the purity uh, used to, which I think is kind of inhumane nowadays or considered inhumane. It's not politically correct. You know, you'd have doves released at weddings. Uh, I don't think I hear too many people doing that nowadays. Maybe it's antiquated or maybe PETA's just gotten in the way of all that. Who knows? But, you know, the, the idea there was this new, fresh relationship and the idea that these doves have been released to symbolize the purity and the beginning of this wonderful relationship that, the, that this new couple has is, is kind of portrayed by that. So you see the symbolic nature of a dove, even in today's culture, uh, that has gone on. So you see uh, that aspect. You also see, if you were to, to look at the symbolic nature of a dove, the idea that the dove is also seen as a messenger of sorts. Doves have been used to be messenger-type uh, animals uh, throughout history. And so doves have kind of conveyed that mindset as well. And if you think about that, those two points in and of themselves really kind of encapsulate the Spirit, doesn't it? And so the, the concept of the Spirit coming upon or being seen by man and coming upon the Lord in the form or the appearance of a dove, uh, we cannot help, I don't think, but see the parallels there of the Holy Spirit and why that may have been a good symbol or symbolic of uh, the Spirit. You see the purity of God, God's unique messenger bringing purity, bringing peace into the world. And so you see this dove, uh, uh, this form of a dove coming upon man, very, I think, symbolic as to what the roles and the natures and the duties that the, the Spirit would ultimately produce uh, as he works and worked in the first century, but it continues to work even in today's world. God's unique messenger and making sure that that message is conveyed both properly in its purest form. Uh, so that man will be able to understand. So you see that kind of a metaphor of, of the spirit being a dove. Uh, and that, that concept is used in a lot of things. You've seen even the graphics that I use. I've got the flame up there on this one, like a tongue of fire, which we won't get into that this week. Uh, but uh, I've got the idea, that the concept of a dove as well in the fire. And so you just see that concept in our minds uh, when you think about the Holy Spirit. The second one you think about is the oil. And by the way, just as a caveat... 
the fire, the tongues of fire, if you look in Acts chapter 2, weren't necessarily the spirit <laughs> themselves. Uh, that's why I'm not using fire as one of these metaphors uh, with regard to the spirit. Uh, never is, is it really compared to the Holy Spirit, but it is an, uh, an example in the scriptures of when the spirit was present, that fire occurred. Anyways, so I don't want to get into bogged down with that. If you're wondering why am I not using fire, that's why. Uh, study Acts chapter 2 and you'll see what I'm saying there. There's no parallel metaphor there. You see also the parallel of the spirit uh, being like oil or likened to oil. And the reason I say like oil, now there's not a, a passage where you're going to see where, where it says the spirit is like oil. Or the Holy Spirit is as oil. Uh, but you're seeing a, a wording and a phraseology used in the scriptures with regard to the Spirit and His presence and His part uh, with us uh, with regard to uh, the anointing. And in fact, John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. Flip over there with me. You'll see the verse uh, with regard to um, that I want to refer to, at least in this passage here. But... Um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, because what you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Uh, if you think about and you look at the idea of the anointing there of the Holy One, and then you compare it to other passages as well, Acts chapter 10, uh, Acts 10, 38, I believe. Yeah. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Um, Acts chapter 10, of course, would be the, uh, the conversion of Cornelius. And so you look down in verse 38, and the, uh, the concept there is, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. First uh, John chapter 2, there's some debate, is the Holy One the Holy Spirit, or is it God, or is it God the Father? Well, when you look at uh, Acts chapter 10, you see an anointing here that God anointed Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit. That phraseology of anointing uh, brings into uh, our minds the idea of oil. And so the metaphor uh, possibly looked at here with regard to the Spirit and His work in the New Testament is the concept of oil. Uh, oil could be used in many different ways, and, and there's a lot that you could read about about oil. I actually did a word search for oil in the Bible. And it's amazing to me, I don't think I've ever done that before, to see how many times oil comes up in the Bible. But there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of times when oil is actually referred to in the Bible. And, and throughout Scripture, it's treated in different ways. One, oil is used for anointing. And I don't want to get bogged down too much with regard to that point in concept. We talked about earlier about Saul being anointed as God's king and ultimately David was anointed as well. That anointing occurred with this oil. Uh, and if you read the Old Testament, I kind of got on a side rabbit trail. I don't know if you ever do that when you study. Uh, but when you kind of study these lessons, you kind of start getting off on a concept, Gene. And, and I started kind of going off on a little tangent about oil, which really kind of is beside the point in this overall lesson. But... Uh, when you start digging and thinking about the Old Testament scriptures on oil, there was actually a specific holy oil, special oil that God commanded them to make, gave them a recipe for it in the Bible. And so there was a specific oil set apart for anointing. It could only be used for specific sacred or holy things. Uh, worship uh, would be also the same type of oil used to anoint such as a king or a prophet, those kind of things. Uh, if you use this oil in any other way, uh, like, such as like cologne or perfume, 
uh, you could be cast out from the nation of Israel. So some of those little side studies, I think, are very interesting, you know, to think about that. In my mind, I think I've never really studied anointing oil. Uh, and so I kind of got on a little tangent, uh, probably took up a little bit more of my study time than I needed it to. Scott, you know how that goes, right? Uh, and so you, you get into that kind of a concept, uh, but you see the importance of oil throughout the scriptures. And oil was used as anointing, not just Old Testament, but New Testament as well. And it was a special compound. And from patriarchal days, it was incorporated into the anointing of special sacrifices. So that would have been carried on over to the New Testament days. So all of these times, whenever they're speaking or they're talking about the anointing of God, uh, such as that Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit, that concept would have been pretty rich in their minds. And they would have understood that, probably better than we do. Uh, we don't go around anointing our leaders. Maybe we should, um, but we don't. And, you know, the, you don't see that today. And in our American mindset, in this physical world we live in, that idea of anointing really doesn't carry with it the importance, possibly, that, that it did to the New Testament and first century Christians there. But you see the anointing aspect and comparing that to the Holy Spirit really kind of gives a very deeper meaning to that. When, when we talk about God anointing his son with the Holy Spirit, that mindset of us, of him being poured out upon Jesus, takes on a little bit more specific meaning because when you are God's anointed, you are set apart. It is a sanctification of sorts. It is a special assignment, a special duty. You have a special place. And so the oil there used for anointing would have signified that that specific person, place, thing had been set aside for a specific and usually a holy task. And so when you start thinking about the Holy Spirit being oil or being compared in this metaphor to oil, you can't help but see, I think, how important or how really deep that can be with regard to the Holy Spirit. He has been sent for a specific task, for specific purposes, so that God makes sure that we are set apart and sanctified in our lives. We're going to pick up here with these metaphors next week, continue with this lesson and get through the New Testament overview of the Holy Spirit. If we get to next week, which I don't think we'll get through it, um, but the next lesson is going to be the lesson on, uh, if you look on the back of your handout, the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so that phrase and what the, that means and what we see more specifically said in Scripture about the leading of the Holy Spirit. Denominational doctrines abound uh, immensely here with this phrase. And so I want to see what the Bible has to say about it. Let's get through the New Testament overview first, then we'll dive into this more specific question. Thank you all for your kind attention this morning.